0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, my name is Bob Budniaski, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Hey, everyone, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast, and I am your host, Curtis Bindley. And in this episode, Transformers writer Bob Budiansky returns to the show to talk about the second half of his run on that classic 1980s Marvel comic. If you haven't heard it already, you got to go to my website. There's a little index at the top of the page, at the top of the site, uh, where you can get a list of all of the interviews and episodes that I've done. So search for Bob Budiansky's other interview, the first half of this Transformers interview, because that one is interesting as well. And this one we talk about different stuff, so there's no overlap. You don't have to worry about that. And they're both really, really interesting. Uh, and Bob is such a great person to talk to. So funny, so interesting. And, and uh, it was great really, really awesome that he was able to come back on the show for a second time around. And hopefully in the future, maybe we can even get him back on the show to talk about something that's not Transformers. So we'll see about that. And in the meantime, uh, check me out on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, just search Epic Marvel Podcast and any of those sites, and you'll be able to find me. And you can also search me on Patreon, at Patreon.com/slash/ThunderQuack, we are part of the ThunderQuack podcast network. You can make a donation and get some access to some exclusive episodes. You can also search for Epic Collections on on Facebook and join the conversation for all of us Epic Collection lovers. If you love the, those books, those huge books that Marvel is putting out, so on with the show. Here is Transformers writer Bob Budiansky. 1987 was kind of uh, the height of Transformers in the 80s with the, the TV show, the movie, and there was a, a Headmasters miniseries, the, the team up with G.I. Joe, the Transformers Universe miniseries, the movie adaptation. This was so much going on all at once. Uh, did you feel like this was kind of overload because you were involved in so much of it?
1: Yeah, I, I guess to some degree I did feel a little bit of, a little bit of overload. So you, know, you touched on a lot of different series. Uh, so for, let me start with uh, the GI Joe Transformers crossover, okay. which was at, which was a natural, obviously, since they were both Hasbro products and they both appeal to similar audiences, and, and it was an easy thing to cross over. So initially, when they when um, I guess the Marvel editor in chief at the time suggested the idea, uh, initially I was asked to write it. I was a natural. I guess probably Larry Hama was also asked to write it, I, but I, I'm assuming he was since he was a GI Joe writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it came to me. You know, Can you write it? And I said, there's no way I could take another whatever I was doing at the time. Uh, I was writing the Transformers on a monthly basis. I was a full time staff editor at Marvel. Um, I could not add that to my workload. So I had to decline that. So my real really my only involvement with that with, with that was um, uh, the writer of that book, uh, Michael Higgins, I believe. Yep. He, he submitted plots that I had to approve. And I guess the G.I. Joe editor or perhaps larry hama had to approve as well just to make sure that whatever he was doing fit within whatever it was we were doing in the regular mainstream books
0: so you um, knew that he was going to off bumblebee or re recreate bumblebee
1: i you know it's been a while but i guess i read the plot and whatever he wrote at the time made sense at that time yeah so if, if the dramatic moment was that bumblebee uh gets destroyed or whatever whatever happened to him I guess within the continuity of, uh, of what I was planning on doing in Transformers, it worked. I mean, if you were if you were a regular Transformers reader of the comic book at that time, you know that I on a re- on a regular basis I found ways to get rid of characters because I kept having to introduce new characters. So I had to make room by re- by eliminating the old characters at least for a while. Yes, yeah. for some at least for a while. I might have brought them back later, but for a while I had to push them off stage and make room for new characters. So more than likely when Michael Higgins said I want to kill Bumblebee I said sure go ahead I don't have any use for him. I don't have room for him now anyway put him you know get him get him out of the way so I don't have to worry about him and then if I want to bring him back later I'll figure out a way to bring him back later hmm. um, that's my speculation 35 yeah.
0: well and he wasn't completely destroyed because he was rebuilt as Goldbug so ah, I imagine yeah. that there is probably a, a toy at that point that came out they they renamed it Goldbug well, or something.
1: If you better or might not know. Bumblebee's original name was Goldbug.
0: Ah, okay. I did not so know that. When
1: I when I got involved with Transformers, um, you know, one of the reasons I got the main reason I got involved was that uh, my boss, Jim Shooter, editor in chief of Marvel at that at that time, uh, who also wrote the original Transformers treatment, he had hired another editor slash writer with a lot more experience than me to develop all the Transformers characters and. After that editor slash writer turned in his work, Jim Shooter decided he didn't like most of what that guy had turned in. Some things made it through, like op- the name Optimus Prime was uh, conceived by my predecessor, but most of the names and character profiles were were uh, rejected. Anyway, Goldbug was was the one was one of them, and um, so I was asked, among other things, to come up with a new name for Goldbug, and that became Bumblebee. Okay, and then a couple <laughs> years later, it became Goldbug again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, how about the Headmasters miniseries? That one, I'm sure, was driven because of a toy line.
1: Oh, without a doubt, yeah. yeah. So, so as anybody observing Transformers back in the late 80s observed, Hasbro kept coming up with not only new Transformers, but new spins on the initial Transformers concept. So there were Power Masters, and Target Masters, and Headmasters. I'm sure I'm leaving out several different categories that they developed at that time. But for whatever, I guess Headmasters... Uh, especially lent itself to uh, spinning off into a, a miniseries because uh, I guess headmasters combined humans with transformers in a unique way. So we were able to expand the mythology of the transformers uh, at the same time, bringing in a whole bunch of new characters. And we were looking, you know, as, from a publishing point of view, we were always looking for ways to exploit a very popular property transformers. Here we are with a four issue miniseries called headmasters. So that one I did, I did write myself, uh, obviously. I figured, uh, I guess I was able to squeeze it into my schedule. I had a pre- I, I had come up with a treatment for it, but a pretty good grasp w- of what the story was going to be about. And so I wrote that myself at the same time as writing Transformers. I guess I was pretty busy back then.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, and did you enjoy Headmasters?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was fun. You know, I mean, it was good. I'm, it was a long time ago, so I can't tell you exactly how I felt every moment. <laughs> right, of course. But um, uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day who was describing the stories to me and what happened in this story. I don't really remember that many specifics. I do remember that there was a group of Autobots who went to this planet Nebulos and uh, and, and they, I guess I guess their presence there, I guess disturbed the the equilibrium, you know, the the, the peace that was there. And mm-hmm. in order for them to continue staying there, they had to somehow bond with the humans that lived there, some of the humans, and that was. Uh, and, they, and that's that's hence the headmaster. So it was humans humans plus robot equals head, headmaster. Human plus Autobot. Yeah. And, and uh, just like, um, like like moss to a flame, I should say. Yep. Uh, that that attracted the Decepticons and all hell
0: Yeah, I liked that mini series because it was uh, there was more focus on I think fantasy because it wasn't uh-huh. grounded in Earth history. It was it was a nice change and a nice departure from the regular series.
1: Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I, I don't even remember all the fantasy I might have been, I might have been there. But I guess I was, I was trying to. I mean, anytime I deal uh, with um, non-Earth humans, I try to keep in mind they're not us. They shouldn't, they shouldn't necessarily. I mean, they should, they should have certain qualities that resemble us, so that the the reader can can uh, empathize, can find something to relate to. But still, they're not exactly us. They shouldn't act just like us. They shouldn't talk just like us. And that was also true with, with the way I wrote the Transformers themselves. Um, it always bothers me, um, especially I guess when I watched a couple of the Transformers movies, uh, a couple of the, more, of the lesser movies of, of the uh, of the run, when the Transformers just talk like you know my my son and his, and his high school friends or something, you know, like right. sitting around the room, you know, chatting like they they grew up here, and I I just don't understand it. I understand that they want to that some of them are more inclined to adapt. Uh, qualities from earth and others but they should still sound like they're not from here that's anyway that's that's my take on it i I can't speak for the way other people write them
0: yeah so the transformers movie adaptation now you you didn't write this one that was ralph macchio but you are editor for that right now uh tell me what is it like having to adapt a movie for the comic form or the comic medium
1: well It's a good job to have, frankly. At that time in the 1980s, I was special projects editor. editor. So not only was I working on the Transformers as an editor, uh, first the miniseries and then the movie adaptation, but I adapted uh, a lot of other movies like Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and uh, Labyrinth and Willow and uh, Darkman and a whole bunch of movies from that that era. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is you're given all of this material to work with. You don't have to like, Start from scratch. Uh, you're given the script. You're given either the movie or stills from the movie or something. To, something that the artist can use. And then the challenge is obviously a movie plays out over you know, maybe about two hours or so. So you have to be able to boil that down into a comprehensible narrative that fits within the within the confines of a usually like three issues of a comic book or, or maybe maybe four issues. So same thing with the Transformers movie, you know, it's all there, and if you pick the right, the correct writer, the writer will, will take the dialogue that's there, but also come up with all the connective tissue that's necessary, you know, because, um, you know, with a with a movie, even an animated movie, you could put a lot visually that you just can't put everything into a comic book visually that you can put into a movie. So sometimes you need a caption, you need a, an extra word balloon or something just to get from point A to point B, and a good writer will do that. So and a good editor will will have his or her eyes on the uh, on the script to make sure it all flows together. And what I've discovered as, a, as an editor of a lot of movie adaptations is a lot of times our movie adaptations work a hell of a lot better than the actual movies do. You know, mm-hmm. we make it flow better. Uh, you know, the, the writers, the artists make it flow better. You know, it's just a lot more, it's a lot more of a complete entertaining product than some of the movies, which, which, which uh, tend to fall flat sometimes when they're on the big screen. I remember specifically, this is digressing a bit, one of the movies I had I adapted of that era was Dune, and Dune is a you know it's a classic science fiction not novel. But the movie I thought was a mess. Yeah. But our, our adaptation was pretty damn good. <laughs> I think Ralph, <laughs> Ralph I, I think Ralph wrote that one as well, and we had a terrific artist Bill Sienkiewicz, who was like a, a legendary artist mm-hmm. who who did the adaptation. And so uh, it's like sometimes you can do a lot more in a comic book to make it right than uh, you know a multi million dollar budgeted movie can do. It depends on yeah. who you have. So anyway, doing the comic book, long story short, doing the comic book version of, uh, of the Transformers movie worked out just fine. Oh, and by the way, I was, at a, I was at a convention just last weekend in Toronto, the TF convention, and I did a panel with, of all people, Ron Friedman, the screenwriter of the Transformers movie. Nice. And I never I had never met him before. We had a terrific time together. It was a great panel. And we both shared our different insights, which weren't that different, as it turned out, about how we approach uh writing you know i wrote the comic book he wrote this he wrote the screenplay it was great
0: how f- far in advance did you have the all that material the script and everything because this the adaptation i think the first part at least came out before the movie was in theaters
1: wow you're asking yeah you're asking me to do, do, do. <laughs> okay i mean okay. typically you, you can't put out a movie adaptation obviously without the, the script some visuals and um I, you know, and, and it takes a while to get uh, scripted, penciled, inked, colored, printed out to the out to the stores. So usually, uh, a comic book takes about six months from 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 beginning to end. Now, in the case of a movie movie adaptation, you might be able to shorten that um, a little bit because the script is pretty much already there. You know, you do have to get a writer to adapt it, but a lot of it's already there, so maybe you can shorten that. But you need you need five or six months to, from beginning to end. And uh, I can't tell you exactly back in 1987 or 86, whenever it was.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, what day I started and what day the movie came out. Oh, of course Hammered.
0: not. Yeah. yeah. Now, these days, um, I don't think we see very many adaptations of the big blockbusters to tie in with the movie just because there's so much secrecy involved in, in you know, like point. the new Avengers and the Star Wars movies and all that. But. I assume that you didn't really have to deal with that side of things back in the
1: 80s. Well, one advantage of, of being in the, in the 1980s, you know, which I guess is like the relative dark ages compared to today, is that even if you knew these secrets, it was really hard to get it out to the public. You know, oh yeah. Now it's right. you no know, secret. You just you just post it on Facebook or on Twitter or something. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows, right?
0: Right, right. Back then
1: you'd, you'd have to get the, you know, the attention of a magazine or a newspaper or some media outlet who might just think you're some kind of crank and, and ignore you if you had that kind of information. Yeah. Uh-huh. Plus, uh, as a, uh, a licensee of Hasbro, you know, we were, we had non-disclosure agreements, so it wasn't like we went around blabbing everything we knew.
0: Right. Of course. We had
1: to keep. You know, we were under. Um, we were under certain you know, uh, legal obligations to keep it to ourselves.
0: Hmm. One of the other mini-series that happened at this time was Transformers Universe, and that uh, seems like such a labor-intensive project.
1: Well, actually, it's just the opposite. That was really easy, and the okay. reason why it was easy was because all that material was already written. I, as as uh, Hasbro came to me with new lines of toys, I would come up with a name and come up with a bio. The bio, I would also then take, once they approved it, I would I would take it and I would make an abbreviated version of it, which would then appear on the toy boxes. So if you saw a toy box of any of those characters mm-hmm. back in the 1980s, I probably wrote that material as well. Right. And and so the material just existed. I didn't have to do anything. I, I, I think I consulted with the editor of that book, the Transformers Universe book, uh, Jim Salakrup as the editor, and I consulted with him about, um, you know the characters and which ones were the most important but we were limited by the number of pages and so on. I think we I think the plan was we were going to do an initial set of four Transformers universes and then we would do another set. But by the time the first set came out, uh, the, the sales were dropping so such that it wasn't really uh, wise financially to come out with a to publish another another set of Transformers universes. But in any case, so the first set might have had like about a hundred characters in it. I don't know. I never counted them. Probably more, but I think there were 32 pages per book. Each page had a character, so you know, it might have been more like 120 something. Right. In this case. So once we got past those 120 plus, you know, we were done with it. But those were already all written. I didn't wow. have to write anything new.
0: Okay, well that's good. <laughs> that's relatively easy. I,
1: I just had help. I just had to help select them if they were like 120, and I had already written, you know, 200 bios or whatever I'd written by that point. Then we just had to select the ones that were most important, uh, you know, most, most prominent. Did
0: you find it difficult having to come up with a backstory for every single one of these characters? Just kind of like you get them in batches, right? I was, uh, I would assume from Hasbro. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, you know,
1: it was, it, was a, it was a, it was a, it was a challenge, but it was a, kind of a fun creative challenge. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I at the convention I was just at last week and I was mentioning, you know, somebody was saying in my, one of my panels with, with, with the fans, you know, How'd you come up with all of those profiles of different characters? Each one was so different from the other. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize they were all so different. I tried to make them different, but it wasn't like it wasn't as if every time I wrote a new one, I checked back on the other eighty-seven I had already written to make sure it different, you know. <laughs> right. I, mean, I kind of had in the back of my mind like, Oh, I, I don't think I did a character like this before. So I, I try to come up with a new slant, a new a new direction. But I I, I would just be inspired by whatever, I was kind of, I was as a media sponge at the time, whatever was around me, whether it was movies, television shows, newspaper articles, events in the news, you know, personalities, celebrities, whatever, I was just pulling things from wherever I could and kind of filtering it through my brain and making them, making them into different Autobots and Decepticons, you know, different character types, different, different uh, action heroes or villains from different movies or shows or books I'd read that I was able to you know, reconfigure in such a way that people wouldn't immediately recognize them, but I would be able to pull out some information and make it into a new character. Uh, also a lot of it was inspired by what the toys actually did. So when I was coming up with new character profiles, the first thing I got from Hasbro were model sheets. So I knew that this robot turned into a lobster or this robot <laughs> turned into a helicopter or, you know, so I was, I was given, and I knew it was a bad guy or a, a good guy so right away, I was given you know some some basis to build off of because I knew what they turned into. I mean, an excellent example is the Dinobots, the robotic dinosaurs. So there's a lot to work with right there. Yeah, and from there I'm able to you know pull together some ideas to make the Dinobots what they eventually became.
0: Oh, I remember a question I was going to ask you about the movie adaptation. Um, you also were involved in the IDW movie adaptation that came out a few years ago, right? Uh, and you wrote that one how did that how did that process differ from uh from the the original 87 version or 86 version
1: oh well as a writer i actually had a i actually had to write it so i had to watch the movie i don't think i'd ever watched the movie before actually really i don't think i don't think i watched it in 86 what i did was i read the script that my writer gave me you know i gave him we had i think we had um we had i don't know do we have dvds back then i'm not sure if we did we had some version. Maybe it was, it was probably a VCR. It was probably a VHS yeah, cassette. Right. He had something. And um, and so my writer, my, it, was, it, was, you know, my, it was my writer's job to, to sit and watch that and compare it to the script he was given and pull out scenes and come up with, with uh, what eventually became the story that he wrote. But so I, I was in that job in 2006, I believe it was, when I got the IDW assignment. And so the same thing. You know, I, I sat down, I watched it a couple times, took lots of notes, figured out where I wanted to break it. I it was it was a three I think it was a, a three issue series and then it was combined into a, a small trade paperback. In any case, so I, I you know I have to sit down and crunch it you know like okay here's where the break is now I have to make this fill whatever it was 24 30 pages whatever of, of material for that issue and uh, dialogue it and pace it so it's a different kind of creative challenge as, uh, as compared to being an editor right and then again like I said like I was referring to earlier I also had to come up with a connective tissue I had to figure out. Okay so you know they're transitioning from here to there. Well we're not going to show them flying through space so I'm gonna you know put a caption here or put an extra a word balloon explaining how they got here from where they were before or something like that um, So it's pretty straightforward it's actually a pretty straightforward process to do a, a movie adaptation as a writer nice uh,
0: One of the artists that you worked with for a good portion of your run was Jose Delbo. Uh, I don't really know much about Jose. At all, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about him. What's what's he like? What does he like to work with?
1: Okay, so I don't think Jose's forgiven me yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> I do, no, I'm really, also
0: not aware of any of this
1: history. No, Jose's great. We still exchange cards every Christmas. <laughs> nice. And occasion, occasionally I see him at conventions. He's a wonderful human being, and he's extremely talented. Uh, but what I was what I was joking about was, you know, Jose is a like so many artists of his generation and my generation. I'm a little younger than Jose but I'm not that young. Um, you know, we grew up uh, drawing people, you know, it's, you know, like drawing heroic looking men and beautiful yeah. women and right. so on. And Jose was no different. In fact, Jose had a long run before he came to Marvel. He had a long run drawing Wonder Woman for DC Comics. Yeah. So he drew beautiful, strong Amazon women. But when you come to draw Transformers, you're mainly drawing a lot of robots. Right. Tons of reference material, which is... You know, out of Jose's comfort zone, and, and Jose's not the only one. I mean, I, I worked with people like Frank Springer and Don Perlin, and, and if they were honest, I'm sure none of them would say their first choice was to draw robots. Yeah, Because it's a lot of work. You have to deal with a lot of reference material, and it's not what they naturally uh, are, 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 are attuned to drawing. They're, to, they're, they're trained to draw people in, in, in dynamic ways, in dynamic, interesting ways so uh jose i think he had the longest run of everybody i worked with on transformers but he was heroic in the effort he put into it because i would well, every time i wrote a plot you know, I, I think you might be aware of the way the marvel method of writing stories was to write a plot first which is like a short story it goes to the pencil artist then it comes back to the uh writer and then the writer scripts it based based on what the pencil artist has drawn right. so i would write a plot and when i gave it to an artist like jose I, the first thing i would do i would list all the different robots all the different transformers, I should say, that he had to draw. So there might be, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 different transformers. So right away, he'd have to go through his pile of reference materials, which were these model sheets I, I mentioned earlier, yeah. and you know, put them aside by his drawing table and have them at hand to start to, to, to refer to anytime he needed it. So anyway, uh, yeah, but Jose was great. Like any, any anything I gave him, he was up to the challenge. He, he was wonderful to work with, really happy... Positive human being. I can't say enough positive things about Jose.
0: Nice, yeah. I'll have to see if I can uh, talk to him sometime about his work on that too.
1: He'll he'll be cursing me. I'm giving you No, I'm just joking. We we I saw him a few years ago at a convention in London, and we, we hung out together. And yeah. went to dinner and had a great time. Oh, good. Uh, great guy. So,
0: in the middle of your run here, around the you know issue thirty mark, you have two teams. That don't really have any leadership. Both um, Megatron and Optimus—you'd killed them off, both of them. Uh, and you. So, what? What was it like to try and uh, write teams that were at this point were bickering over uh, leadership? Was that a, was that a fun challenge?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I did it with. I did it intentionally. Obviously, it wasn't like an accident. Uh, once again, Transformers was constantly shuffling through characters as Hasbro introduced new characters that had to find ways to get some characters off the stage and add new characters, uh, into the, into the storyline. So, uh, I also wanted to shake things up. So one way to shake things up was Optimus Prime. Let's destroy him. Yep. Uh, now in my mind, I always realized that, you know, these guys are, are mechanical creatures and we could rebuild them. And which I did, you know, it wasn't like Optimus Prime disappeared forever. Right. And even in the issue where he was destroyed, I gave a pretty strong hint to anybody who was paying attention to that issue he still existed. Yeah, his 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 mind or his memories existed on this this little floppy disk. It's amazing what compression compression algorithms existed back in the 1980s. <laughs> so um, yeah, so his entire you know his entire being was on that little floppy disk. So anyway, but that, that I believe opened up the opportunity to bring in uh, Grimlock and the uh, Dinobots, and then and then there was I guess uh, a, I don't remember the details. I think perhaps it was a struggle or maybe there wasn't a struggle, and Grimlock became. Uh, the rather um, ill-equipped leader of the transform- of the Autobots for a little while, mm-hmm. and I also wanted to make the contrast. Okay, now you know up until Optimus Prime just you know was off the scene. You had a bunch of Autobots led by a guy who had real empathy for the plight of human beings that they that they were inflicting their war on us here on Earth. Uh, that was Optimus Prime. But now Optimus Prime is off stage, and now you have Grimlock, who's really only his only concern really is his own people, which is the Autobots. And how to how to defeat the uh, Decepticons, and humans were just kind of like uh, collateral damage at best for him. You know, like either get out of my way or suffer the consequences. And so I wanted to show that contrast that not everybody in the Autobots related to humans the same way Optimus did, which would, which is kind of a natural thing. There would be a, there would be a a range of um, of attitude about about being on Earth and and having to deal with humans among the Autobots. So that was I think the germ of my. Uh, my, my idea of, of moving Optimus Prime off and bringing in uh, the, the Dinobots, specifically Grimlock to kind of uh, begin their reign of terror or error, uh, <laughs> leading off for a little while until things changed again. Yeah. Now with, um, I have to be honest with the Decepticons, I don't remember exactly. I remember you know, Starscream was always challenging Megatron or trying to challenge Megatron. And there was a time I believe when, uh, when Shockwave was running things. So, I don't. I don't remember. I'm a little hazy on you know when Megatron moved off stage and who replaced him and who took over. Um, I don't remember those details as, as clearly, so I don't have much more to say about that. I do remember Ratbat for a while. Oh yeah, Ratbat. Ratbat I fashioned as an accountant. His only. <laughs> term, he wasn't much of a warrior. He was an accountant. He wanted to make sure that you know they that there was there was enough supply of energon and that you know that the Decepticons had enough to 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 operate you know to do whatever they needed to do so he wasn't quite as um he didn't have quite the vision the overarching tyrannical vision perhaps as uh, megatron did but uh again i tried to mix in different personalities you know not have the same you know main good guy versus the same main bad guy every issue it would get kind of boring after i did that
0: do you think rat bat went over well with the kids like do kids really want a, a toy that's an auditor? <laughs> I was
1: auditor. just whatever came to my mind. You know, I, I mean, I know that my most probably, uh, arguably my most notorious story is uh, Buster Witwicky and the Car Wash of Doom, which, uh, yes. which, which was written prominently. And I was just having fun. Like, hey, this is a parody. This is a parody. You know, obviously the movie that, was, that I was parodying, in fact, again, referring to this panel I was at uh, last weekend at the TFCon in Toronto, somebody said, what inspired Buster Witwicky and the Car Wash to Doom? I said, well, isn't it obvious? You know, the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, we even, we even copied the font yeah, from right. the movie title. You know, we didn't make any bones about it. It was, a, you know, it was a straight parody. But I had fun with it. I, I told a story which involved, a, you know, Buster and his girlfriend. And, you know, I, I tried to make it uh, a fun story and give it, a, you know, a little bit offbeat. And uh, that's what it was. You know, and if people people liked it or they didn't like it. What could I do? But as much as possible, I always try to come up with some different directions every every issue or so. You know, sometimes a couple of issues will link together as a two or three part issue, but two, two or three part story, I should say. But, you know, I always try to come up with a, a new direction to take it into so that, you know, what you saw last issue isn't necessarily repeated the following issue.
0: Another character that uh, entered the scene around this time was Spike, who was prominent in the TV show, but never appeared in the comics up until, you know, the issue 30. or I can't remember what number it is exactly. Did you br- decide to bring him in, or was that somebody else saying, you know, this Spike guy is really popular in the TV show. We should have him in the comic, too.
1: Well, if I recall correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't Spike brought in through the headmasters?
0: Yes. Um, okay. No. Well, he was a headmaster, but he wasn't in the Headmasters miniseries.
1: Oh, okay. He replaced like somebody from Nebulos, I think, died yeah, or something. Right. Replaced him or something. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how I brought him in, but let me give you the history of Spike. So uh, I mentioned earlier that Jim Shooter wrote the treatment for Transformers. Yeah. Uh, and and so he created the Witwicky family, you know, uh, uh, Buster and his father, Sparkplug Witwicky. Um, but initially, Buster's name was Spike in okay. the initial treatment. So if you actually saw a copy of the treatment, which I have, you would see it's written as Spike with my handwriting crossing out Spike. And on top of Spike, it says Buster. <laughs> okay. It wasn't, my it wasn't my idea, but somebody at Hasbro did not like the name Spike. So that message got transferred to Jim Shooter. That got transferred to me. And so Buster's name replaced Spike's name. Now, while we're doing all this material, while we're creating all this material at the Marvel office, it's going to Hasbro, and Hasbro then is – resending it to Sunbow Productions, and they do the animation. Um, we're out of the loop. You know, Once it goes to Hasbro's offices, we don't know what happens to it. So at some point early on, there must have been an unedited version of the treatment that still had Spike's name in it that made it to Sunbow. And that's why Spike is Spike in the in the animation, and that's why he's Buster in the comic book.
0: Right, because they are exactly the same character.
1: Well, that, they were intended... I mean, they, they started out with the same character, obviously, once it became apparent that one was Spike and one was Buster... What do we do, make it like so they were brothers or something? I forget yeah. the... Uh, yeah, Spike was the older it.
0: brother. He was away in, in college. is why we yeah, hadn't seen him yet.
1: we not seen him until somebody said, hey, you should bring Spike into the comic. So I guess somebody, I don't remember exactly, but somebody probably said, hey, why don't you bring Spike into the comic? And so I did with the uh, Headmasters. Nice. Yeah. That's great.
0: Uh, issue 33 and 34 are reprints of UK uh, stories. Okay. What was your relationship, if any, with the UK offices who were also producing Transformers comics at the same time?
1: Okay, so um, my relationship was pretty much ignorance. Okay. <laughs> or, or, or not so much ignorance, but like, like just I was, I was aware that they were doing the fill-in issues, but I wasn't paying any attention to them because none of it affected what I did. They had to work around what I did. Uh, as you might know, well, I'm sure you know that typically am- American comic books – uh, and by extension, Canadian comic books are on a monthly schedule, yeah. and then the English comic books were on a weekly schedule. Right. So uh, they would rapidly use up our material if they were reprinting it, and they would have to get fill-in issues. And so they hired Simon Furman, uh, I think from the beginning, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to do the to write the fill-in issues. So whatever they wrote, it didn't affect anything I did. It wasn't like oh, I have to follow up from. These two issues of fill-in material that they did for the British market, and tie that into my next issue for the regular Transformers comic. I was completely ignorant of it. I didn't read them. I, I was aware they existed, but it had no effect on me. Now, having said that, uh, there were during those years uh, a couple of times Simon visited the Marvel offices. Uh, we met. You know, he was happy to work on on the, on the Transformers overall, and happy to meet me, and my, happy to meet the editorial team that worked in the Transformers. And, and then eventually um, in 1989, early 89, I took a vacation over to, to London, I had lunch with Simon and told him I was ready to leave the book. Would you like to take over? And he was like, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity. And that's how he became the regular writer on the American book, which wasn't by my by the way, that's not my job as a writer to find new talent. That was really the editor's job. But i had been i had been begging the editor for probably about a year, like find another writer for this book. I'm ready to move on. Oh. and uh yeah i mean, i just i had other ideas i wanted to pursue and i was getting burnt out on con- uh, continually having to bring in a slew a slew of new characters and move aside all these old characters that i was developing and you know having fun with and uh it was it was becoming a little bit of a burnout for me so so i was looking to move on and uh the editor kept don daly was the name of the editor at the time and he kept begging me please stay at all. You're you're great. You do a great job. I have nobody else to replace. You. And and then finally, I got a hold of Simon, and I said to Don, who had met Simon also, I said, you know, he's willing to take over as writer, and and so it was a it was a win win. You know, and not only was I, I not only was I quitting, which is what I, which, was, which is what I was ready to do, but I was able to find Don a, a, a very a more than adequate replacement, a great replacement in Simon. Yeah. So um, he was able to continue uh, after I left. Well, that's great. Those fill in issues that you mentioned, uh, I was behind on my deadline, so. So um, Don Daly, editor at the time, was able to pull those in. And I guess it was Don at the time. Yeah, able to pull those in and you know give me a, give me a little bit of breathing room to uh, catch up on my deadlines.
0: After the cartoon series ended, did that relieve any pressure on you as the writer of the of the comic?
1: So this is interesting. So you keep you keep touching on areas I'm completely ignorant of. I must sound like the stupidest writer in the world. <laughs> okay. So I was ignorant of the British comic books that filled in the gaps between mine. Yeah. I was only ignorant of the animation. I never watched one episode of the animation. Right. It wasn't it wasn't relevant to what I did for my day to day job on the yeah. Transform. So there was no pressure. The only slight pressure, and when I say slight pressure, even that's an overstatement. Uh, that came about was that after the first year of the animation, I think it was after the first year, the, the, the animation studio d- decided to move Transformers in a different direction. You know, I think they were basically took them off Earth and made mm-hmm. them more, you know, cosmic. A lot of it took place on uh, Cybertron. Decepticons you know, versus Autobots and like humans became really secondary. So somebody from Hasbro said to me, you know, we're doing you know, the, the animation studio is doing this. Do you want to follow it? I said, I'd rather not, I'd, you know, I'd rather continue basing most of my stories here on earth with humans, and, you know, continuing doing what I'm doing. And I said, okay, you know, there was never any pressure for me to really follow the direction that the animation studio took. So, um, you know, from then on, there was, there was nothing that happened in the animation that ever had the slightest impact on anything I did.
0: Well, I guess what I mean then is when the, the cartoon ended, did Hasbro care as much about Transformers as they did before?
1: I was on Transformers through like, you know, middle of 89 um, issue 55 of the comic book was the last issue I wrote by that time it was a dying toy brand Yeah. without knowing every detail from back then. It's been a, it's been a while, but I would say the pressure from Hasbro to, uh, to do this or do that, which was mainly from, I mean, most most of the pressure they put on you, I mean, was uh, introduce introduce new toys. I mean, from a, from a reader's point of view, you might've been reading the stories and, and, and thought, Oh, these are great stories, and they're they're exciting, and they move in all these different directions, and bring in all these new ideas. But from my point of view, it's like, how do I fulfill the mandate? And the mandate is this comic book is to sell toys, (laughs) and that that may sound very crass and very you know very capitalist, materialistic, but that's what it was. Right. You know, and I had to do that with, with art. You know, I had to do it with with finesse and artistry, so that you, the reader, would read a story that you would enjoy, and me, the Marvel tool. Would would fulfill the mandate of, of, of providing a, a, a platform to help sell more toys. So by by 1989, the toy the toy line was really winding down. You know, they were they. I think Hasbro had significantly reduced the new rollouts of uh, lines of toys. I think by then the only toys they were putting. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm sure there's plenty of Transformer toy historians who can correct me. But you know, I think what they you know, they they'd gone from these more elaborate you know Fortress Maximus type toys and make you know like. You know, really elaborate, you know, uh, expensive toys to like mini bots. You know <laughs> right. that that uh, anybody could buy for a dollar ninety nine or whatever it was back then. So, but that's but that's what the Transformers toy line uh, had dwindled to. So, you know, and uh, along with that would be Hasbro's um, pressure on me to to do anything in particular because they really weren't you know opening up new uh, lines of toys that needed a lot of exposure in the comic book anymore.
0: Mm, right. Uh, and speaking on that, uh, you'd already mentioned that you you know you you'd kill off characters to make room for more and that kind of stuff. There's there's one point toward issue number fifty where you just slaughtered a whole ton of them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's just, well, you... it was issue fifty, I had to do something big, you know. Yeah. So I, I... <laughs> hey, a little digression. I one of my inspirations for that storyline I spoke to earlier today. <laughs> So if you remember that 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 was like a three or four a three or four story um, uh, three or four issue story arc, yeah, and involved something called the Underbase, which was this immense storehouse of data, like an ultimate source of power to anybody who could somehow manage to hold it. I guess it was the um, Infinity Gauntlet of its day in some way, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. And, and um, and so not that I not that I copied the Infinity. I wasn't even. I mean, I might have been vaguely aware of. It. Infinity Gauntlet if it existed. But oh, it that didn't wasn't exist my, at this point. It didn't exist. So I, maybe Infinity Gauntlet was uh, is the um, underbase of its day. There I you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the underbase, um, I believe I buried it in a mountain on Cybertron called uh, Boltax. Yeah. Okay, so earlier today I was talking to my, my dear college friend, Janet Boltax. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and we were chatting for a while and she said oh i have to go now my husband and i are going to watch a television show i'll call you back tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> so that's like right, that name boltax from. i so i told her back at the at the time i told her i said you know i'm writing transformers comics and your last name boltax is like a perfect name for that comic book <laughs> yes
0: that's right
1: <laughs> so a little a little a little uh, piece of little piece of transformers trivia there that's <laughs> where that that name came from and we're still really good friends. And uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, so back to your original questions about you know again clearing out characters and 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 just making a big deal of this is issue fifty building up to a big storyline. Um, Starscream gets the ultimate power, but it's more than he can handle, and he he explodes you know into into bits and bits and pieces. So yeah, I just wanted to do something that would uh, have some impact and shake things up, and also to clear out some of the you know, the excess that was accumulated with all these characters that had yeah. had been introduced over the last few years in the transformers i just try to create some breathing space so i didn't have to i didn't have to be aware that you know these guys are over here doing this and there're 50 other guys over there i don't know what they're doing so let's just move them off the stage for some for some time and not have to worry about them for a while
0: yeah it's not like you were left with only one or two characters even after that <laughs> so lots right. to choose from but-
1: Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Now, a lot of my inspiration for uh, that approach for Transformers about blowing up characters, but keeping in mind that they, are, they can always make it back uh, if I want to bring them back. When I was a kid, I read among many comic books I read was a comic book called Metal Men from DC Comics. I don't know oh, if you're yeah. familiar with it. Yep. And Metal was basically a team of, I believe, seven robots that were built out of different metals. They weren't considered alive, although they, they certainly acted as if they were alive. And they were built by a human named Doc Magnus. And every, almost every issue, the Metal Men got trashed and, and blown to bits or pulled into different pieces. And the following issue would be Doc Magnus putting them all back together again. And I figured, <laughs> well, if, if Doc Magnus could do it for Metal Men, I could certainly do the same for Transformers. And I, and I did, you know, maybe not for every character I blew up, but for many characters that, that uh, had been torn apart or some, some way or other, they were put back together again eventually.
0: Yep, for sure. There was a. This is just. I don't know if you even know this. This uh, there was a logo change after issue number fifty on a new logo for the book. Was that a Marvel Comics decision or a Hasbro decision?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. I would imagine it was a Hasbro decision. You know, they, it's their property. So if they had a new logo, they want to introduce. I don't think Marvel would have been the ones to say, "Hey, we want to change the logo." I think it would have been a hazard. Yeah,
0: it's because it. of branding and all that kind of stuff.
1: Right, right. Yeah.
0: But it just seemed coincidental because it was uh, it's coincided with the monumental like 50th issue.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't remember it's possible they had this new logo and we said, "Hey, why don't we wait to, why don't we wait till issue 51 because we're going to change everything up, you know, dramatically after issue 50." So yeah. we'll bring, you know, we'll have this new lineup of transformers. We'll start with a new logo and uh, it'll all be like fresh as if we starting over again, which wasn't really the case. But, you know, give it a little, a little bit of a freshening up by putting a new logo on it. But I don't remember. it was remember. It was a long time ago.
0: Right. The 55th issue, your last one, you do the layouts for that. Uh, and I know that you you are an artist as well, and, and you've drawn many of the covers and such, but this was kind of the only real interior art that you did for the whole series, right?
1: That is true. That is true. I um, believe what happened was... Editor Don Daly was in a crunch. He didn't have an artist for that issue. and He was begging me uh, to, you know, I, can I draw it? You know, he knew I, he knew I was an artist as well. And uh, the fact that I didn't have issue 56 to write, you know, 55 was my last, so it gave me a little more time in my schedule okay. to allow, allow me to do that. But I really didn't want to draw comic books while I was, while I was working as a full-time editor. So I had, a, I had my 9-to-5 job. I was writing a book a month, Transformers, I was occasionally drawing the cover to Transformers. Most of the covers I did not draw, I did layouts for. So even if I didn't have the credit as being the artist on it, I did the layout and gave it to another artist to draw. So I had my hands on a lot of different things. And um, having made my living for a little while uh, as a full-time Marvel artist in the early 80s and, and comparing that to making a, uh, to also writing a, a monthly comic book, it takes so much, at least for me, it takes so much more time to draw than to write yeah. a, a comic So it was a real, um, almost impossibility to consider drawing the book, writing the book, and having a nine-to-five job. Wow! That's why you only saw that last issue, and even that issue, I don't think I even drew the whole issue. I did layouts for about half of it.
0: Right? Yeah. I also noticed that the the robots feature very minimally compared to the amount of humans in that issue. (laughs) Probably (laughs) (laughs) you didn't want to draw all those robots either.
1: Yeah, it probably has to do with why I fi- accepted the assignment because I learned a lot <laughs> You know, I've gotten a lot better at drawing robots, but I do a lot of these conventions, and people are always asking me to do sketches, and I'm, I'm finally getting the hang of it. <laughs> so oh, that's good. All these, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you have a favorite issue over the 55 issues that you did? Or more yeah. because if you include, like, headmasters
1: and such? Um, well, okay, so, yeah, it's true. I could, I could include headmasters, although... Usually it doesn't, doesn't stick in my mind as much as the uh, the regular Transformers book. Right. My favorite issue um, was uh, the Smelting Pool actually. I think it was issue twenty three or something mm-hmm. around there. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it's odd that that's my favorite because I always tell people that the reason I wanted to write Transformers as long as I did with was because I was able to write these powerful alien mechanical beings on our planet and interfacing with us, and that's what made it interesting for me. Yet the smelting pool doesn't take place on Earth at all. <laughs> right, it's all on Cybertron. It's, it's the actually, it's actually in the comic book. It's the introduction to Cybertron. I hadn't written the story about Cybertron up until that moment, but I just felt that story was it really came together. It was very powerful. It had a very dramatic ending. It, it worked on a lot of levels for me. So, I, and I liked. And I, it also went into the second half of that, which was um, the, the bridge to nowhere, which uh, was I thought a pretty good. Issue. I thought it was also a pretty good issue. And brought it back to Earth. But uh, the first one, the first half of that, the smelting pool, I thought really worked well. So that would be my favorite.
0: Nice, yeah, I like that one too. I especially like how how brutal. The, uh, what I can't remember the one transformer's name. Who's like he's lowered in the in the smelting pot and and like half of him's gone, and he's still trying to weakly communicate to the other guys. <laughs> like, that was Scrounge. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. That yeah, and it was just more brutal than anything we'd seen in the book up to that point. It was pretty wild.
1: Yes, and just for you, know, for you and your, uh, your, your listening ship, they should know that that ending was uh, inspired or an homage to a classic movie from the 1930s called *Gunga Din*. Oh, so, okay. if you ever watch, watch *Gunga Din*, you know where that ending came from.
0: Okay, I'm going to have to check that out. I will
1: definitely do that. <laughs> That's awesome. Daring Carrie Grant is based on Rudyard Kipling book. Okay. About uh, colonial British, British colonial uh, India. And so Gunga Din is the water bearer for this troop of English soldiers. And in a similar manner, in order to save the soldiers, he has to sacrifice himself, mm. giving away the ending. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, very, it's a very powerful ending in Gunga Din. And uh, Gunga Din is the water bearer, by the way. And, um, and so in a similar way, you know, Scrounge to his last dying breath, is going to do whatever he can to save the Autobots. And that's what he does at the end there. So
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Bob, for talking with us through the last half of your your time on Transformers. It's a great companion to the other interview. So if you if you're listening and you haven't heard the first part, uh, you should go over to the website and uh, search for Bob Budiansky's name to see if you can find the first half of this this uh, interview, because it's well worth listening to there as well. So, But thank you, Bob, for uh, talking with us and for all your work on The Transformers. I'm sure people uh, thank you about this all the time, but we totally appreciate this. Uh, It's it's a big part of our childhood, so it's important that we uh, acknowledge the people behind that.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's my pleasure on multiple levels. My pleasure to be on this show, and it was my pleasure to write those books back then, even though I made it sound like it was a struggle sometimes. I really enjoyed my time on Transformers overall. It was, it was a blast. And, and what makes it even more of a blast is that all these years later, there are so many people out there who still remember what I do. And I go to – the I, I, whether I'm being interviewed by you know, yourself or other people or going to Transformers conventions, I'm always getting so much positive feedback on work that I thought you know just existed for the time I, I wrote it, and, then, and that was it. Yet it still has a life beyond all these – beyond the time that i wrote it as a wife all these years later so i'm very thankful that i could be here to discuss all this and share all this with you and your listeners thank you